children are dismissed. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi as we continue our study of this great epistle. It's been well said that no one is ready to live until they are ready to die. And whoever originated that statement really is echoing the preacher in Ecclesiastes who said this, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Why? Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. In other words, it is good and it is profitable, it is wise, to spend time considering the day of your departure. It is profitable to consider your living in light of your eventual dying. The Apostle Paul undoubtedly lived like this. He lived with a kind of purpose that was unmistakable. He was one, he said, who was not living so as to beat the air. As a boxer, he sought to land his punches. He didn't waste his days in hedonistic pursuits. His heart was given fully to the pursuit of Christ, to know Christ, to know things that are unseen, to live after those things which are eternal, the things above and not the things on the earth. There is a glory, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory, an inheritance in heaven that awaits all who love the Lord Jesus Christ and long for his appearing. In one sense, as Paul faced capital punishment for his faithfulness to Christ, he couldn't wait to get there. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He continues in this vein in verse 23, saying he was hard-pressed whether, whether to, uh, to live or to die. He says, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Charles Spurgeon called this verse one of the gospel riddles which only the Christian can truly understand. Spurgeon's right. There's a certain note in this verse that will resonate in the heart of everyone who, in fact, knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, have we really thought much about what Paul meant when he said, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a familiar verse, isn't it? It's a treasured verse, And it's easy, I think, in our day to fall prey to what amounts to really a cliche Christianity. You see it all around you. Let go and let God. God helps those who 
help themselves. It's a God thing, to which I reply, of course. What troubles me is that that phrase gets used almost exclusively when something beneficial and something, something good happens in your life. It's a God thing. What about when trouble comes? What about death? What about the loss of a loved one? Is that a God thing? God is good all the time. I was never much of a math student, but I I think that thing I see in cars means he is greater than I, right? You've seen that. These cultural Christian sound bites speed through our culture with with amazing velocity. I can't believe how quickly and how far they spread. I wish scripture would spread like that, frankly. And there is a danger if these pithy statements are the sum of your faith, and I fear for many in the church, at least in America, that's exactly it. These kind of shrink-wrapped, freezer magnet theology that that tends really to trivialize what is the most profound realities of our faith. They reduce the word of God and they reduce our precious faith to bumper stickers. They're shallow and they're simplistic and they They trivialize things, and this sort of sloganeering approach to the Christian life, and I'm not trying here to be stodgy and to simply be critical of the culture around us, but we must understand, beloved, that these slogans will not deliver the day. Scripture will deliver the day. Scripture will make you strong. The Christ of Scripture, the Word of God, now that's food for your soul. That will make a man a full-measured man. That will make a woman strong-legged and strong-backed and able to stand in the face of trouble. Those are the very things that upheld the Apostle Paul in the midst of this imprisonment and the insecurity of not knowing what his next day would hold. We need to be growing in the grasp of the whole counsel of God, of sound doctrine. We need people to be able to accuse us of chapter and verse living. It's easy to come to a profound, profound text like this that is so rich it's, it's, it's beef jerky when it, when it comes to Scripture. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can come to that sort of thing, profound as it is, without thinking carefully and deeply about the implications of this kind of thing. If we're to post it on our refrigerator, if we're to, to have it as a life verse, we need to think through what did the apostle Paul mean when he said this? It really would be easy to simply assume we have this tiger by the tail. I mean, for me to live is Christ, of course it is. And to die is gain, well, everybody knows that. But 
I want to bite these off, these two statements that Paul makes, one about life, the other about death, in the next, uh, this Sunday and next. And the question this morning really is, what did Paul mean when he wrote for me or for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain? And this morning we'll just look at the first question. For to me, to live is Christ. What, what is it that Paul meant when he said that? And before we do that, I, I want to just consider three things just preliminarily. The first thing I want you to see is that this statement is made in context. We've pointed out time and time again, you never want to just become a, a one-verse man, woman. You, you want to understand that verses always come within context. It's vital to the understanding of a text. So this comes in a broader setting, and I want to read it with you this morning. Let's look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, in my circumstances, you remember Paul was in jail as he wrote these things. He was on house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. We'll stop there. Paul, you remember, is giving a ministry report to the Philippian church who is concerned for him. And he tells them that really he's very well and he's rejoicing and he has no doubt that his joy will in fact continue. Remember, that was not a determined statement. I'm gonna rejoice come what may. He was saying, no, I'm rejoicing now and my joy will continue to overflow. Why, Paul, why is your joy so great? Well, he gives us many reasons in this text, doesn't he? He says in verse 12 that his circumstances have, have proven the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel train is running down the tracks faster because Paul's in prison. He says that the word spread through him to the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, presumably throughout Rome and even the known world at that time as these soldiers made their way carrying the gospel like stickers in their socks everywhere they went. He said beyond that, the Roman church is trusting Christ far more and they're preaching with a, a, a boldness that I've never seen before. And above it all, Christ is being proclaimed and I rejoice and I will rejoice he says, you know, I, I have this promised deliverance. 
We don't know whether he meant by that from, from prison or, or from fear in preaching the gospel at his defense or whether he meant by that his deliverance to eternity, but whatever the case, he knew Christ was faithful, he knew Christ had promised him deliverance, and he, he, he banked on it. He knew that he had a praying church behind him and the provision of the Holy Spirit who is sufficient in all things, and he, he had seen the past faithfulness of God in his own ministry time and time again through the things that he had suffered, God had made him bold and faithful to preach the truth, and he had above all this prospect of a glorious future that whether he lived or died he rejoiced because he knew that it meant Christ this is the context in which he makes this statement and you'll notice the first word of verse 21 is the word for that is a connective term he is connecting what he's saying now to what he just said his reasoning is going further what, what Paul is about to say is tightly connected to all that he has just said. He says, you know, I'm, I'm in these painful circumstances. I'm suffering in bonds for Christ, but I see what the Lord is doing in and through these things. I love him for it. I rejoice in this, and I know that I will continue to rejoice for, he's giving the reason why he is so buoyant. That leads us to the second thing we need to note before we go further in this, and that is that this statement by Paul is deeply personal. It is deeply personal. If Paul had had a bumper sticker, I'm convinced that this would be it. For to me, to live is Christ. That would have been his personalized license plate. This is Paul's creed, it is his motto, it is his life verse. Let me reverse that or say that again with a little different emphasis. This is his creed, his motto, and his life verse. The Greek is very, very emphatic. The word me is in the emphatic form and it is at the beginning of the sentence in an emphatic position. Paul is saying, look, I'm just gonna speak for myself here. Whatever anyone else thinks, I want you to understand how I view life, how I look at things, how I think about things. To me, to live is Christ. In fact, Paul says it with even a, a greater dramatic flair than that. In your English Bibles, the word is, the verb is, is there. In the Greek, it is not. It's supplied by the translators to make sense in English, but literally Paul's statement would sound something like this, to me, to live Christ. Beautiful, isn't it? I wonder, if you were to summarize your motto, what is it for you to live? How would you fill in the blank in so simple a sentence? What, what constitutes living for you? Would it, would it be family? Would it be marriage? For to me to live is my career. For to me, to live is home. Music, golf, motorcycles, hunting, church, friends, travel, 
reputation. All those things in and of themselves are good and okay in their place. They're gifts, really, aren't they, of a kind God to us in this world who gives this God all good things to be enjoyed. But beloved, none of those things are worth living for. None other than the towering evangelist of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield, said this, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me. If by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus might be promoted. You ever think about your eulogy? What will people say of you? Will Christ have been so manifested in the way you speak and the way that you live and the the way you spent your money and the way you planned what you planned and the way you carried on life in your home that, that someone will get up in good conscience and say, for this man who by the grace of God knew the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, for this man to live is Christ and it is with Christ that he now lives for death is gain. For Paul, for him to live Christ, period, full stop. Jesus was both the center of Paul's life and he was the circumference of Paul's life and everything else that was in Paul's life fit within that circumference or it did not fit at all. Well, there's one other preliminary thing we should note before we move forward, and that is this statement that for me to live as Christ was not always true of the Apostle Paul. You know that. There was a time in Paul's life when he did not ascribe to this motto. In fact, there was a time that Paul, or perhaps I should say Saul, did everything in his power to stamp out Christ. There was a time that this motto might have read, for to me, to live is to persecute Christ. Paul had an incredible reputation. Look with me at the book of Acts. Acts, we'll pick up in chapter seven. This is at the stoning of Stephen. We read in verse 58 that when they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And then note, we we bump into Saul yet again. 
This is the man who was later to become, actually in the next chapter, chapter 9, Paul. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen, made a loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. The Lord used this, of course, to scatter his church and spread the word of God and spread the gospel of Christ. And then Paul was met in a rather dramatic way in chapter 9 by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, any believers in Christ, these men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go down to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now that did not sound like something Ananias wanted to do. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've, <laughs> I've heard from many, not a few. This man's reputation has spread far and wide. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. If there was ever a man who was never going to get saved, it is the Apostle Paul. If there was ever a man who was hard set against the truth of the gospel, proud in his own self-righteousness, it was the Apostle Paul. And God comes and acts in such a way that he brings Paul to his knees, he softens Paul's heart, he gives him a new spirit, he makes him alive, and lo and behold, Christ is magnified in this man. Verse 26, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. They thought he was going undercover, covert. They found out quickly enough 
go to the right a few books to the book of Galatians, we'll just see this in one other place. In the first chapter, in verse 13, Paul is giving his testimony. Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. No one was more opposed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than Paul. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely jealous or zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see what happened to Paul? The same thing, frankly, that happened to you. I don't remember being blinded. No, but you were blind. And you were given sight. And you were set apart from your mother's womb if you were in Christ here this morning. In fact, the scriptures are clear that you were set apart from eternity past. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. This was not some message you heard somewhere and you said, that's it, I believe. That may have been the way you experienced it. But beloved, there was much that was done in advance and and the Lord came in his grace and acted upon you and he brought you to salvation in Christ. I tell you, no one lives for Christ from the womb. But everyone is radically changed when God intervenes in our lives to save us. There was a time, beloved, according to the words of 2 Corinthians 5.15, when each one of us lived for ourselves. And you know it, don't you? You remember those days when you were the sum of your life. That verse tells us that Christ died so that they who now live, what? Might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. You see, your compass was switched from heading south toward self to heading north toward Christ. You now have had a radical shift in your orientation in life altogether. This is the definition, really, of a believer, that this radical change of loyalty, this complete reorientation of your life's compass, what, what, what people used to call, and I wish we could recover it, I was converted Praise God for his converting work. And so I would say to you, brother and sister, before we go any further in talking about this text, understand this, that when Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, he is very personally referring to himself. But I would say to you this, that that motto should just as much belong to you and belong to me. Again, I ask you, is it for you to live Christ? This isn't somebody else's motto. This is the heart cry of the Christian. 
Jesus is not an addendum to your life. He is your life. I remember when I played Little League and my mom used to have this little badge with my, my picture right there, left side of the plate. My Dodger gear on, I look clean and good. I'm sorry to bring up the Dodgers. I know that's a painful thing around here, but I was a Dodger as a 10-year-old, and my mom wore that badge proudly. Why? Well, I was her son. What else could she do? And I, I think it also would be fair to say that I was, in fact, to a great extent, her life. I know that as, as a kid. I, I was loved. But I would say this, that Jesus does not want to be pinned on the lapel of your life. He dominates your life. So let's think for a minute what's bound up in that statement that Paul makes. To live is Christ. At a very basic level, it would be maintaining the, 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 the balance, if you will, of this text. If we said that all Paul was really saying here, he's talking about living, he's talking about dying, he's going to go on in the next few verses to say, well, if I continue on, that's going to be, you know, fruitful service on your behalf, Philippians, and if I die, well, that means going to be with heaven and with Jesus in heaven, and that's very much better. We could say that all that Paul is saying here is that if he survives his trial, he's going to go on serving Christ, and that is certainly true, but I don't believe that's enough. I think Paul is saying more than that. Martin Lloyd-Jones gets more at the issue when he asks this question, quote, what does Paul mean by life? He means the supreme thing in life, the thing for which and by which he lives. He means the thing that controls all of his life. That really is the gist of it, I think. You could summarize it by simply saying that Jesus is everything to Paul. Speaking of another motto, perhaps this one could go on your fridge. Jesus plus nothing is everything. You've seen that one too. That's a good bumper sticker. The Lord Jesus Christ dominated the landscape of Paul's life. His heart was utterly consumed with, the, with, with, with Christ. For Paul, life means Christ. He loved Christ. He wanted to know Christ. He was occupied with Christ. He was filled up with Christ. He was consumed and motivated by Christ. He proclaimed Christ. He couldn't wait to see his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul does was done for Christ. Christ alone was the reason for his existence. I don't think it's too much to say that everything in Paul's life was subordinate to and utterly subsumed in Christ. Paul, Paul had taken Jesus and, and put him at the very center of every dimension of life, every dimension of life. There was no sacred and secular for Paul. Everything was sacred. Everything was Christ. Paul had, I think this is the simplest way to sum it up, that Paul had a truly Christ-centered life. Everything spun on that hub. He was a man of one passion. He was a man of one pursuit. And you can see it plain enough in the book of 
Philippians, you know that Paul mentions Christ by name in this simple four-chapter book. He mentions him either by Christ or by Jesus or by Lord some 73 times. Do you talk like that? (laughs) Paul did. You couldn't talk to Paul without hearing the Lord, without hearing Christ, without hearing Jesus. Now as we go from here, I want to think about this. Really, I want to sort of illustrate it, if you will, mostly just from the book of Philippians, of how does this Christ-oriented, Christ-centered life work its way out in relational terms? How does it play out in Paul's relationship with God, in Paul's relationship with men, in Paul's relationship to the world? So this is our, this is our first point, if you will. How, how is Christ our life in relationship? How is it expressed in relationship with God? When Paul thought about his relationship with God, he thought in these terms. For to me, to live is Christ. Beloved, you know this if you've been around the Bible at all, that every man from birth is at enmity with God. Everyone by nature is at war with God, and God is at war with him or her. Every one of us, each one of you, has broken the law of a holy God. And your sin separates you from him, not just till you feel better about what you did and you've forgotten it. No, understand this, that sin separates you from God forever. Paul in Ephesians 2 speaks about the fact that we were, what, dead in trespasses and sins. And by that he means you were spiritually dead to God. You were separated from God. In Romans, he writes, there's none righteous. No, not one. And there is no peace. And unless something is done to remedy the situation, each one of us is destined only for wrath and condemnation in hell. The Bible is crystal clear about this. These things are not spoken in some corner somewhere. You don't hear them much in our day, but it is good to hear them. We speak these things because it is loving to do so, because Christ has commanded us to do this. Jesus spoke about hell a lot. He doesn't want you to go there. So the question is, what hope do we have for our sins to be forgiven and our our relationship with God to be reconciled? And the answer to that question, what hope do we have, is this. For to me, to live is Christ. He is our only hope. No one, but no one, is clearer on this than the Apostle Paul. Look down with me to chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 2. Paul says, beware of the dogs, and by that he meant the false teachers. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Those who would teach you that in order to get to heaven, all you need to do is is clean up your life. You just need to obey God's law, and then everything will be fine. 
And we can reduce God's law to something that's manageable. I mean, this is down in the fine print. But we can reduce God's law to something that is manageable so that you can go home going, I'm pretty good. Paul says, don't listen to a gospel like that. Guard yourself from people who would point you to your works in order to be saved. And in very Jewish language, he says, for we are the true circumcision. By that he means we are truly saved. We are those who worship in the spirit of God and glory. Note this, we glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says if, if, anybody, had, if anybody had the right, if anybody could stand before God holding up a list of their external obedience to religious rights, it was the Apostle Paul. Anybody else who thinks that they can place confidence in the flesh, well, they're just going to have to get in line behind me. Because nobody did it like I did it. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, I mean, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in what he can do by way of works, I far more. And he goes on to spell it out. He does a little sanctified bragging. He says, just think about me for a few minutes. I was circumcised the eighth day, just as the scriptures commanded. And I'm of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. In fact, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from Texas. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I'm a Pharisee, which were a group of six or 7,000 men and only men who made it their point to polish the outside of their lives in such a way that people would look at them and think, my, my, are they holy people. And yet inwardly, Jesus says, you guys are full of dead men's bones. You're dead as a doornail. Paul says, I was good at polishing the cup. Verse six, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. And as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I mean, this is an amazing statement. He says, found blameless. Paul was a goody-goody. But note the break with these things in verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, that, that is, he's, he's rolling out here, if you will, a, a financial book and he lays it out in front of him and there's a profit column and a loss column and he looks at all those things that he just said that made him such a significant figure in Jerusalem and in Israel and among the Pharisees. He was excelling beyond all of his countrymen. He was a guy. If anybody was going to heaven, if anybody walked side by side with God, it was Paul. Saul. He says, I look at all that stuff that I used to think was profitable, was helpful, was a gain to me, and he says, I took all those things that were in my profit column and I moved them over into the loss column for the sake of Christ. I was relying on all the wrong stuff.
He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view, note this, of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, literally excrement, dung, so that I may gain Christ. Listen, your, your righteousness before God, brother and sister in Christ, is not in any way, shape, or form tied to anything you have ever done in this life. Your righteousness before God is but filthy rags. There is nothing in the prophet column. If those books were to be opened apart from Christ before God, everything would be a debt. But it is that debt that got nailed to the tree. It is that debt that Christ bore the penalty of when he went to the cross for our sins. And Paul understood that. That salvation is not something that comes by works, but it is a gift given to you from God at Christ's expense in spite of you and your unworthiness. Listen, you you needed two things to be saved. You needed, first of all, forgiveness from your sins, and you needed, secondly, a perfect righteousness. Because God, who is holy, 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 and perfectly righteous, cannot endure even one sin. What did James say? You can keep the whole law, you fail at one point, you're guilty of all, you're out. That standard is impossibly high, and there is nobody but nobody who ever could attain to it except the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived among us for 33 years, born under the law, and he lived it every jot and tittle. He never sinned, not in thought, not in word, not in motivation, not in deed. He never sinned. He is is perfect. Which brings us to the second thing you needed, not only to have your sins forgiven, but also to have that righteousness that you could not earn, I could not earn. Christ, in fact, earned it. And so that forgiveness and that righteousness collides and comes to you, all of that imputed to you, credited to your account, so that that God forgives us and he grants us eternal life as a gift of his grace through the righteousness of his Son. The wages of sin, Jesus said, is death. Well, if Jesus never sinned, why did he have to die? It's because he was bearing our sins. Which is why eternal life is a free gift through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. So your sins have been forgiven once and for all and beyond that you have a right standing before God. You are holy and blameless. And that perfect righteousness achieved by Christ has been given to you. This is what what the saints of old used to call the great exchange. My sins to him, his righteousness to me, and we are accepted and adopted of God, and all of it is a gift, not as a result of works that no man should boast. 
You've heard the question before, on the day that you pass from this life, what would you say to God if he were, and this is hypothetical, to stand at heaven's gate and to bar it and to say in front of you, why should I let you into heaven? The first answer every one of us ought to give is, you shouldn't. But add a conjunction very quickly. You shouldn't. You shouldn't, but you promised me that if I would but look to the cross and trust in Christ's sacrifice on my behalf, that you would wash my sins, you would forgive them, you would make me white as snow, you'd remove them as far as east is from west, you would, as a father has compassion on his own children, have compassion on me, and you would grant me the righteousness that I cannot earn on my own, you would give it to me through faith in Christ. And that's why, Lord, you promised me eternal life. I tell you, brother and sister, those doors will swing wide open. Why? What is the key that opened the gates? For to me, to live is Christ. If there was ever a password into heaven, that's it. Christ is the end of hostility with God. Christ is the end of fear that you will not be good enough in the end. Christ is the end of self, self-serving, self-saving, self-righteousness. Christ is the end of any and all condemnation. Christ is our peace. Christ is our only boast to us to live is Christ. Now secondly, how does this impact our relationship to others? How does Christ, who is our life, impact our relationship with others? Just as there was a vertical dimension for the Apostle Paul in the expression of this reality in his life, Christ impacts life on the horizontal dimension as well. All that Christ had done in loving Paul, all that Christ had done in living for Paul, living righteously for Paul, all that Christ had done on the cross in dying for Paul, in forgiving Paul, all the goodness and the grace of God that Paul had received from the Lord led him to live in like manner toward others. Flip over to Philippians 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. How do you come up with those words? Encouragement, love, consolation, fellowship, affection, compassion. It's because it's what he'd known from Christ. And he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing, nothing, not some things, not every once in a while, but do nothing. This is, this is your mantra all day long. I do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Stop right there. This is the posture and the disposition of a true Christian. 
again, like I said earlier, you've been reoriented, haven't you? Away from self and toward Christ. The, 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 the two great commandments are what? You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. You shall love God, you shall love man. And this is the way this worked out in Paul's life. It's, it's really throughout the whole scriptures, isn't it? Think about it. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Romans 12, 10, give preference to one another. Be subject, Ephesians 5, 21, submit, therefore, be subject to one another. I mean, we could go all over the place and you would find that, that we are called, aren't we, to a life of humble service in the interest of others. It's everywhere in the Bible and the question is, what is it for Paul that gives him the impetus, the motivation to live like that and to call us to live like that? And the answer, again, is to live is Christ. There is forever a tendency in the Christian life toward moralism. To look at it as just a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws. To think somehow that, that it's about doing those things so that God will be happy with us. Listen, if you're in Christ, God is happy with you through his son. That doesn't change. He loves you. He's called you his own. You stand before him in, in some sense that, of perfect righteousness. You'll never be more righteous than you are today. However, we are still in practice growing into that righteousness, aren't we? But notice the way that Paul comes to this. He doesn't come at it by just flinging out a bunch of commandments out of nowhere and say, do it. What does he do? It's always with Christ at the focal point. Listen to these verses. Just listen and concentrate with me. So as those who've been chosen of God, he starts with that. You're God's. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, you're righteous and you're loved. Now what? Put on a heart of compassion. Why? Because God showed compassion to you. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Brother and sister, just reflect for a second. Isn't, isn't that the way God has dealt with you? Day by day, despite your orneriness, despite your occasional fits of naughtiness, despite all of the frailty and the weakness, despite rebellion at times, God has been compassionate and kind. He's gentle and he's patient. He bears with us. And so he says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other and whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should forgive. Romans 15, 2 and 3, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Oh, my orientation is to be to please you, to do good to you, to build you up. Why? For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ bore our sins. He, in his death, in the humility of coming and being born, comes what? In his incarnation, humbly to, to, to please 
us for our good and for our edification. You see, Christ is Paul's paradigm for absolutely everything. And so he exhorts us in verses one to four to live in humility before one another and to show preference to one another, to place the interests of others here uh, before our own. And the question is, why should we do this? And all you have to do is look back at verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves. What attitude? A humble attitude. That kind of attitude that considers others more important than yourself. Why? Well, because it was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the question is, who is the one ultimately who looked out for the interests of others? Who is it that manifested an attitude of humility that is beyond comprehension, frankly, (laughs) that the Son of God would become Son of Man? The very Lord Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, and all the degradation, all the spitting, all the cursing, all all the difficulties of this life, all the weariness of this life, he took all of that on, and on top of that, he bore our sins in his body on that tree. Who condescended more than anyone? It was Christ who offered up obedience as a slave to his Father. It was Christ, the King of glory. Who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many? Was it not the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see this? How how the fact that Christ was everything to Paul not only impacted the way he thought in relation to God, but in the way he thought about relation to others around him. And this is the very same thing that we need to have in our own thinking. We love the Lord, don't we? We're grateful to him. I mean deeply grateful, like unspeakably grateful. You know that in your heart? The kind of grateful that motivates you to just wanna love and serve and give back. This is the kind of thing that was in the Apostle Paul's heart, this knowledge, this indebtedness, this desire to be like Christ. Beloved, is it for you to live as Christ? Because this is the way that we can bear the unbearable. This is the way that we can live with a difficult spouse. This is the way that we can be patient with challenging children. This is the way we can can serve an ungodly neighbor. This is the way that we can forgive a brother who sinned against us. It is this very thing of learning to love others in the way that we have been loved by God. It's living in such a way that the constant awareness when I look at others is Christ. We regard no man 
This is a great answer for our day, the Apostle Paul again, right? We regard no man any longer according to the flesh. Doesn't matter whether he's rich or poor, whether he is black or white, whether he is European or he is Asian, it does not matter in the least. We look at every man, every human being, and we ask one question, are they in Christ or not? That is the driving way, that is the set of lenses that we need to have in our own lives. And Paul looked at everything through that lens. Christ, Christ, Christ. Finally and quickly, our third point, final relationship to consider this morning, how is Christ our life manifested in relation to the world? Listen, when Christ is your life, you turn your back on the world. And by that, I don't mean the people of the world. I don't mean sinners. But you turn your back on this world and its lusts, this evil world system that is satanically inspired, all of its fool's gold. You turn your back on it. All the things that everyone else is living for, no, for to me, to live is Christ. I don't need all that. John, you remember, sums up the world nice and tidy in three phrases. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, what's he talking about? He's talking about those, those passions that, that this world is characterized by. Not all of them evil, but we don't lust for them. We don't crave them. The lust of the eyes, that is a lust for all that is material, everything that enters through the eye gate. The boastful pride of life, he's talking about status and position. Listen, a, devoted, a life devoted to Christ is a life satisfied by Christ. A life devoted to Christ is a life satisfied with Christ. You cannot, brother and sister, have Christ and be panting after all the world's stuff. You cannot say, for to me, to live is Christ and the world. James, in fact, tells it in the most graphic language. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world, you see, it's mutually exclusive. This is not a Venn diagram. These are separated circles. Whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's either or. Paul said elsewhere, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's he saying? There's been a clean break. The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. Positively, we could say it this way. Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus is everything to me. One of my favorite Expressions of this comes in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 31 where Paul writes that we should live as those, get this, who use the world, but we do not make full use of it. You get what he's saying? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? 
God gives good gifts to his children to be enjoyed. This world is something that should be enjoyed and it should always be enjoyed with an eye towards God and gratitude in your heart, delighting in the good things he's given to you. Ice cream is good. Vacations are good. Children are great. Family is wonderful. A warm fire on a cold night is really something. But don't make idols out of that stuff. We use that stuff to a degree, recognizing, understanding full well that these are not ultimate things. These are just temporal things given by God to be enjoyed. He is forever. Christ is eternal. The kingdom of God is where I'm a citizen, not here. You see, Paul understood that the form of this world is passing away and he was seeking earnestly after something else. Go back to Philippians 3. Hang with me here, we're nearly done. Philippians 3 and verse 7, Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted but lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. What's he saying? Christ is just my primary pursuit in life. Nothing else matters to me ultimately. They can have it, they can keep it, they can chain me. I might be free, I might be able to enjoy it, whatever, it's indifferent to me. What matters to me is Christ. That's what I'm after. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Christ had saved him, and that salvation has defined his direction in life. That salvation has has dominated him, and it's it's driven him to, to seek the things that are above. He says, I count it all rubbish that I may gain Christ, doesn't he? Forgetting what lies behind, verse 13. I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ. Paul is not resting on his earthly laurels. He's not polishing trophies. He is hard after Christ. The world behind me, the cross before me, that's what I want. I want Jesus. I want eternal life. I want the kingdom of heaven. For Paul, it's onward and upward, and there is no grass growing under his feet. Flip over to chapter 4, last passage, verse 11. The Philippians had sent Paul a gift, and Paul thanks them for it. And he says in verse 11, listen, as I receive this gift from you, understand it's, it's not that I speak from want. For I have learned how to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Do you hear that? I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I was content before I got the gift, but I'm really thankful for it. I know how to get along, verse 12, with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. I've had both. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, going hungry, or of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him, through him. For to me to live is Christ. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. You see, Christ satisfies me. Christ is life to me. Earthly circumstances, they are what they are, but my soul, says Paul, is so satisfied in Christ, I can endure any earthly circumstance. I can rejoice in any and every circumstance. My joy is not found in material things. It's not found in the freedom to travel. My, my joy is in Jesus Christ and him alone. I never knew what happened in pastor's offices until I became one. I always wondered why I drove out. What do they do in there? They drink coffee and eat donuts? What do they do? I don't know. Sometimes I'll walk into the office and I find my friend Charles and I, I, I say to him, hey Charles, you ever been to so-and-so? And he's looking at me, kind of blank a little bit, right? And I said, you haven't lived until you've been wherever. And Charles often replies with something that is just really, really wise. The kind of things they teach you in Texas. <laughs> He'll say to me, no. No, I haven't, but I, I would like to go someday. I hope the Lord will give that to me. That would be delightful. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. I'm going to live again. I'm going to live again. Beloved, you don't have to get it all in. You will die someday, barring the Lord's return. You will die someday, and there will be some things, probably on that list that you did not get to knock off. There may be some regrets, but I promise you this, what awaits you is an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison to anything that even can be known in this life. You don't have to get it all in right now. You do not have to live that sort of bucket life Christianity. You do not have to have that front porch retirement mindset. You don't have to be a jet setter in this life. Why? You're going to live again, and it will be better. It will be better, I assure you, because Christ has assured us. Does he not, even in this very text? Well, it's next week's text. Can you imagine what a disappointment the Apostle Paul's life would have been to have spent the first half of it running around frustrated trying to snuff out the kingdom of God and the church which Jesus promised to establish. Utter frustration his whole first half of his life and the whole second half was nothing but beatings and stonings and life in the local jail and shackles. What a loser of a life. But Paul's joy is unassailable. Why? Because he will live again. Paul has Jesus, and if you have Jesus, you have everything. And you have everything forever. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to the Alka Indians, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
And beloved, this world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever, lives forever. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Is Jesus Christ everything to you? Does he captivate you? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, to me, to live is Christ? I tell you, if that's the case, then to die is gain. And we will get there next week. I borrow an ancient prayer today from the fifth century. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Lord Jesus, this morning, we lift these words to you because it is our heart's desire, Lord, that for us to live is Christ. We pray that these things would be so of us to the honor and proclamation of your great name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.